when you look back on your life and if if you look at it and say objectively listen i was not as successful as i could have been will the reason be because you ran out of opportunity or will it be because you didn't focus on something and i would say that in every case it's because you didn't focus welcome to the brand master podcast show specialized in helping branding professionals and entrepreneurs to build brands using strategy psychology and creative thinking. What's up, Brand Builder? Stephen Horahan here on the Brand Master Podcast. And in this episode, I'm chatting with David C. Baker. Now, David C. Baker is the author of a book I really love, The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insight to Impact and Wealth. Now, this book is an absolute field guide about how to find your niche and position as an expert, selling your thinking separate from execution. And in our chat, David shares valuable insights about how to build your expertise, how to separate your thinking and create an offer to sell it, and questions to ask clients to lead them to strategy before execution. So if you are interested in learning how to separate, promote, and sell your thinking from an expert about being an expert, then do not miss this episode of the Brandmaster Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brandmaster Podcast. And I'm delighted to have David C. Baker on the show with us today, author of the excellent book, The Business of Expertise. David, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to, to join us today. Glad to be here. And I miss you, folks. I, uh, I've, been, I've been to your part of the world many times, and I just like that's one of the things I hate over the last few years, not being able to get back there. So it's nice to at least hear the accent anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's uh, I I have an Australian twang, but I'm actually Irish, so I've got this kind of cocktail going on. But uh, but I definitely have some uh, some some Aussie words in there. But yeah, you're right. It's uh, hopefully the the borders all open up soon, and we can get back to uh, to a little bit of travel. Um, yeah. But uh, but look, uh, uh, people listening to the show at the moment, a lot of them will know who you are. Um, because you know they they uh, they're they're interested in kind of building out their careers as experts. A lot of them in the creative field. Um, but uh, I want to dive into uh, you know some some of your your thoughts on different areas of kind of niching, positioning, and everything that you're an expert in. Now I just recently uh, got the book again, and this time I got it on Audible, and you actually narrated that that one yourself, didn't you? I did. I had a great time. I went to our cabin in the woods and took me about two days and read a chapter, then took a walk, read another chapter, took a walk. It was a lot of fun to do, although I cannot recommend it for authors, though, because you discover how many typos you've made, like when you read it to your. (laughs) Yes, I did. I had fun doing it. Uh, It sounds sounds great. Sounds like something Stephen King would do. But um uh, yeah, like one of the the one of the uh, my favorite parts of of the book is your story about um, you know uh, driving that beat up old car and having to park ten blocks away before going into to your client to to kind of give off the, this this perception of of being an expert and you didn't want to, your old car kind of interfering with that. But can can you kind of give us a little bit of a background into to how you became an expert at being an expert and and kind of what that journey was like. Sure, happy to. My I grew up overseas. My parents were medical missionaries, so my upbringing was very odd in that 
I didn't come to the U.S. to live until I was 18. We lived way up in the mountains with no electricity or running water, roads or stores. So I was really green, came to the U.S. That I was headed to a teaching field, into the teaching field and spent five full years in grad school. And to help put myself through grad school, I decided to start a firm, a marketing firm, thinking how hard could this possibly be? It turned out to be quite a bit harder than I thought, mm -hmm. uh, but there, there just weren't many good examples. I'd never worked at one. I just started one, made a lot of mistakes, did some things well. And about five years into that, I began to advise other principals simply because somebody who had a publication in the field asked me to contribute some articles. And I decided to write them. It was fun. And then he asked me to help him do some seminars. And I did that. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, I'm having so much more fun doing this than I am doing what I was doing running a firm. It was a small 16 person firm. And I realized at the time that the world didn't necessarily need another one of those firms, but it probably did need somebody who could advise principals about how they were running their businesses. And so it was a very, very quick transition. That was 20, that was 94. So however long ago that was 28 years ago, almost. Wow. Yeah. And, and it, from the very beginning, well, within a year, I, uh, this is, this is how accidental it was just honestly, I needed to buy credibility. And so I was doing some direct mail, which is what you did back then. And mm -hmm. then I was also buying a full page ad in communication arts, which was, it's still around. The publication is still around. And, and in phone conversations, I would be talking with a prospect and say, well, I'm sure you saw my full page ad in communication arts. And of course they hadn't, but all I wanted to do is tell them that it was there. And but it just was so expensive. It was $5,000 a month. And I, I just simply couldn't afford that. So I thought, well, what if I started an email list and people gave me their email addresses in exchange for sending them stuff that was useful to them? And that was the beginning of this is way before Google or Amazon or any of those companies, even before ISPs or ESPs. And I had a server in my living room. And it just started to take off. People were really interested in the stuff. And so that started a long, uh, basically a writing career. I think of myself more as a writer who also advises and it spread the word. And then of course, when Google came along, I had already given Google something to work with. And that's, that's the short story, basically, that it, I just stumbled on a lot of the right things accidentally, and, and it's been a, a, an interesting journey. So would you say then uh, a lot of um, your, the, the, the pathway to getting to being a, an expert on expertise was through writing and formulating your thoughts? Right, but not yeah. because the writing attracted clients, but because the writing forced me to articulate what I mm -hmm. believed. Yeah. And in the process, it attracted other. So I was essentially just thinking out loud in public. I don't think of myself as a thought leader or a public intellectual. I was just simply thinking out loud. And so as other people listened in on the conversations I was having with myself, they decided, oh, maybe there's something here. Maybe we should work together. And I, it never occurred to me that I shouldn't give this stuff away. I just thought, well, this helps me to figure out what I believe, what I think. And I'm so embarrassed about 
I'm so afraid, so terrified of being embarrassed in public that it put a lot of pressure to think through this stuff pretty carefully and to make as few mm. mistakes as possible. So that was that was really the, the nucleus of it. Yeah. And I, I, look, to be honest, I, I think, um, uh, you know, most people don't get into thought leadership thinking that they're going to be a thought leader. I think a, a lot of it is, is organic and really kind of formulating your thoughts and, and putting it out there into the world. Um, and then, you know, it either sticks or it doesn't. People either follow that or or they don't. And the ones that become thought leaders are the ones who kind of, you know, generate this following of people who kind of have the same beliefs and and believe kind of the same things. But um, right. uh, there, there, there's a, there's a, there is definitely a, a lot of conversation in and around positioning or niching, certainly in the, in the creative field. And, you know, there, uh, certainly for a lot of freelancers, it is quite difficult because it is, you know, kind of counterintuitive to niche down, to put your flag in the ground and say, we are for these people. And in turn, closing all the door to all this other business and kind of essentially pigeonholing yourself. Do you understand that that fear and kind of what's your counter to that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I certainly do understand that fear. And I would say that since, you know, for the last several thousand years, we have all been very niche, niched, but we didn't realize it until about 25 years ago. So the, the niching was geographic up until mm. um, the online world was created. So mm-hmm. you had a business, whatever it was, and your clients were, by definition, the ones that were close to you geographically. That was your niche. And when the world opened up, so to speak, it meant that you could now serve customers with your expertise outside those boundaries. That was the good news. The bad news was that everybody else in all these mm. other podunk towns could then work. You you no longer had a protected marketplace. And so that happened and it, it should have terrified a lot of people. What, so the world has so much information and they have and consumers have this expectation that they will get very specific answers very quickly and it will almost always be free. So in that world, how in the world could you be an expert? There's just too much information out there. There's it's too deep. You could never learn enough. And so just from a practical standpoint, if you're thinking logically here, you realize, oh, my goodness, if I'm going to be an expert, I'm going to have to narrow that down so that I can go deep. Mm. Now, the other side of that is the fear. And th- this is the only valid. It's not even valid, I guess. It's the only real argument, though, against a niche. And that's that you're going to run out of opportunity. And so entrepreneurs have this crazy fear that they'll starve. And so that notion of creating a narrow niche means that they have less opportunity. That's that's how it hurts them to think about it. But I would just fast forward 20 or 30 years, depending on how old somebody is, and say, when you look back on your life, and if, if you look at it and say objectively, listen, I was not as successful as I could have been. This is just not what I expected. Will the reason be because you ran out of opportunity or will it be because you didn't focus on something? And I would say that in 
every case it's because you didn't focus. The people that are worried about this are so dang competent. It's just ludicrous to me to think of somebody who's that smart and that disciplined and that hardworking running out of opportunity. That's just a crazy notion. And so it's just a way of adapting to the way the world has changed over the last 20 years and recognizing that if you're going to really be an irreplaceable expert, you're going to have to start focusing because there's just way too much to learn. And in one lifetime, you can't do it. Yeah, and I think that's a really great way of looking at it as well, that 25 years ago, everybody was niched because, you know, the, the locality of, of businesses made you niched by default. And, and you know, uh, you're, you're right. Everything changed when, when it all opened up. And I, I certainly saw that firsthand in the creative market where I had, you know, clients kind of going overseas because they, they were able to get work done kind of cheaper online. And that it really did kind of hit home then that, that this, this world has changed and we're now in a different place. Now, if for, for those who want to find their niche, who want to find their position, their area of expertise to put that flag in the ground, what would you say would be the most important defining factors that they could look at to really kind of plant that flag in the ground? Yeah, the first thing is probably to recognize that you're not going to invent expertise. So whatever you declare is going to emerge from something you've already done. So if you think back over the last however many years, and you can probably go back further than it might occur to you. So you go back X number of years, think about those situations where you made money and you made a difference. You moved the needle on behalf of the client. And you're probably going to come up with, I don't know, five or six options. And the process of selecting a niche or narrowing your focus is really to choose one of those typically and say no to the rest. So we're not talking about inventing expertise. We're talking about uh, making a choice, crossing a boundary, and from here forward, our rate of learning will accelerate a whole lot. We're already competent enough, and the choice we're making is to learn at a much faster rate. So that's the first thing. We're not inventing expertise. Uh, the other thing is to think about how many competitors are there and how many prospects are there. And here's where we can get a little bit scientific, not totally scientific, but a little bit closer to that, that goal. And if you look across the landscape and you can't find anybody else who's declaring the same sort of expertise that you intend to declare, then you're either first to the party, which is unlikely, or other people have considered it and decided it wasn't viable. So you really mm -hmm. do want to find some competitors, but not too many. And that's somewhere in the 10 to 200 range. And then the same thing for prospects. You want at least 2,000 prospects. Now I'm talking about professional services here, not products or anything. Mm -hmm. So at least 2,000 prospects. If there are more than 10,000 prospects, you probably need to narrow it a little bit more. And then the fourth thing I'd say is that, you know, th and this kind of relieves a little bit of that pressure in your mind that focusing is really about the work that you are publicly going to seek. It does not control the work that you accept privately. Mm -hmm. yep. So you can still take some of this work, especially during that awkward transition where you're a total unfocused generalist. Down the road, you want to be a very focused 
specialist and only take work where you're really suited for it. But in that awkward in-between time, you can t keep taking the work that you're doing now, which frankly, you wouldn't have had any trouble accepting just yesterday because mm -hmm. you did a good enough job. And that relieves a little bit of that pressure. Yeah. And, and this is something that, that, uh, that I talk about extensively as well, because so many people have uh, trouble with, with, really that mindset shift of of shifting that focus but it is true that if you are positioning it's really just about your message to the market and what you do behind the scenes you can choose to communicate or not so you although from a positioning perspective you are closing that door on this other business to be more relevant and more focused behind the scenes you're still able to work with these people so don't be afraid of you know not having food on the table because you can't work with this client of course you can it's just when it comes to your positioning your messaging your focus that these particular uh, businesses that you want to be known for is is pretty much what you you speak about is is, yep, exactly is that right. what yeah yeah exactly uh, right a lot of people are call uh, are nervous about calling themselves an expert so just to give you an example i speak a lot about brand strategy um as Kind of a, 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 a an alternative to offering more creative services just a different kind of spin and, and you know an area that's growing in terms of uh understanding um what what would you say to somebody who has a fear that they don't have you know a complete understanding of this area they want to go down that road you have a, a technique called the 55 topics that you used before can you explain what that that concept is Sure. So often those questions that those doubts that kind of undermine our confidence are really internal. We're, we're usually not hearing those from prospects or clients. And to quell those, you just acknowledge that they're there and you begin noting. So write down those questions that you get consistently from your clients or prospects where you don't feel like you have a carefully articulated point of view and you feel like as an expert or as a budding expert it seems like you should but mm -hmm. you kind of stumble around and you hesitate and you 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 look away you know it's just it's you can if, if i was watching you objectively i could see that oh you're kind of making shit up here temporary like okay it's good <laughs> enough but it's not it's not the same level of confidence so yeah when you get those questions then start writing them down mm. and then make a commitment to articulating a point of view on those now it's not as if that that point of view can't change over time but you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your clients to have a carefully articulated point of view about uh whatever it is that you're an expert in and yeah i mean what is an expert an expert is somebody who, who at least in this context an expert is somebody who gets paid to think not mm -hmm. do get paid to think and so you need to be able to without hardly any hesitation articulate on any question related to your expertise. And if you keep getting stumped by certain things, then by golly, write those things down. And so I did this, I did that. I, I had no idea how many there were. I just knew that there were a lot of them and mm. I just started writing them down. I looked at it, it's like, oh my God, there's 55 of these things. I don't really have a clear point of view. Now, because I'm an entrepreneur, I did something a little bit strange. I said, okay, well, I'm gonna write on these things and how am I gonna be disciplined enough to write on, to research and write on them regularly? And 
by God, I might as well get paid to do that. So I created a publication that was called Persuading, and I sold uh, subscriptions to it. It was $360 a year, so $30 an issue. And every month now, because people were paying me, I felt the pressure to deliver on those promises. So I wrote mm -hmm. 55 issues. And then when I was done, I closed it down. Uh, so four and a half years and made about a million dollars. People oh. paid me a million dollars to figure out what I thought about it. And so, you know, you can, you, you can be an entrepreneur at the same time. I, I love that. Um, and and in, in your writing as well, and this is something that you speak about, uh, that you, you've spoken about before, you didn't just create content for the sake of content. Now, we live in this content heavy world and, and you know, it's, it's kind of this, this, this known thing that you need to do. You need to go out and, and create content. But speak to me about the difference between insight versus content, because anybody can create content, but the real value is in the insight. Is, is, that, is that what you believe? It is, yes. And I would say that most of the content that you and I read is content instead of insight because it's based on really weak positioning. It's It could be applied to so many different things. It could be written by so many different people. Mm -hmm. the, I, don't, I don't have a really specific definition of the difference between the two, except that insight is unignorable. So if some, if it's the right target that you're writing for and they read your insight, they should be forced in their mind to stop and think and either agree with it or disagree with it. Content is completely ignorable. It's the kind mm -hmm. of stuff that you read on LinkedIn day, you know, minute after minute, you go back to LinkedIn and you see there's 17 notifications of new articles and none of them are worth reading. It doesn't make you stop and think, stop you in your tracks and think. Insight changes how I think. It's unignorable and it, it's based on a very tight positioning. Content is the kind of stuff that you write because you think it's cheaper than buying ads. You think you're you're feeding something to Google, you're trying to do something with SEO, and you're not generously giving away brilliant insight to your prospect and clients. Content is what you write for yourself. Insight is what you write for other people. Yeah, and and you you you're dead right. You see this time and again. You're you're scrolling through LinkedIn or Instagram is another place. Uh, you you see that as well, and it's it's just general knowledge. Uh, that's that's kind of, there's so much of that out there, and then every now and then you come across something, and they take the general knowledge, but they find a little nugget of gold in the middle of that, which is an insight, which is another way of looking at things that gives you a better perspective. Um, right. And they're they're the ones that that you save. Now, uh, a lot of you spoke earlier a little bit about expertise as you know the the thinking behind the the execution and the separation of the the thinking and the execution. How valuable is that thinking when compared to the execution? A lot of people give this away for free. How valuable is that thinking? Well, I guess it depends on how valuable the thinker thinks it is, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in our industry, the industry that you and I serve, it's very obvious to see this because you'll find long, you'll find 80 page proposals that analyze what's happening at the client level, makes very specific suggestions about what they should do differently. Mm -hmm. And then the only decision the prospect has is, 
do you want to hire me to do all of this stuff I've just told you you should do? Or do you want to hire somebody else? Or do you want to do it yourself? You're giving away the thinking. And instead of that, it's the antithesis or sort of the solution to long proposals that give away thinking is to sell it in some sort of a roadmap or a diagnostic where the very first engagement that you're uh, working with with the client is really to solve that. So, so if a client isn't sure if they want to hire you, the way to answer that question is not to solve their problems before they hire mm -hmm. you. The solution is to help them see how you think and the process you use to arrive at it. And you wouldn't quite say it like this, but what you're thinking is, listen, I have no idea what's what's in your what's wrong with your situation right now. I do know though that I've seen many situations like this and I have a way of solving this. I have a process that I apply. And if you're not sure how I think, here is some stuff that I've written. I didn't write it just for you, but I wrote it for the marketplace. And if you're willing to pay me a lot of money to solve your problem, you have a right to know how I think before we start. So here's something I wrote for everybody rather than a proposal, which I wrote just for you. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I love that because that that's exactly the conclusion that I came to over time because I made that mistake so many times. I would sit on the phone with prospects for hours. I would give away my thinking. I would I would dive deep into how I thought they could be different. And then I would put together this proposal and I would invest hours and they would go with, with somebody cheaper. So I, I've, I've seen that and what I learned to do, and, and this, is, this is what I believe you're suggesting as well, is to put a gate around that thinking and to give them a platform to step up and look over the gate to see how those processes work. Is that right? Right. And instead of writing content that just touches on the surface and tickles their fancy, instead, just choose a narrow slice of something that's important to them and go really, really deep with it. And, and that will tempt them to work with you because of all these other unaddressed areas where you could go really deep. That's insight. Content is really thin across the whole thing. Insight is helping them see how deeply you think about something as an example. Right. Now, it, it, you, you spoke earlier on, on a roadmap, okay? So, and, and this is kind of aligns with, with my next question here. How, how can you create a compelling offer around that thinking so you've alluded to the roadmap what 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 would that look like well it's usually anywhere from five to ten percent of the total value of the project that you would typically do and you're just mm -hmm. peeling off the initial section of it and you're selling that as a solution to their challenge and the, the way to imagine that is to pretend that the client has fantastic capabilities to implement whatever you would suggest. So there's no illusion that they're gonna hire you to do all this work. All they want is an outside uh, objective expert opinion on what needs to change and they're going to do all the work. That's how you think of a roadmap or a diagnostic. Now, in most cases, they actually want you to do the work too, but instead of 
making all those recommendations in a long proposal, which you're doing for free, you put it into a diagnostic and that's how you think about it in your head. The client is gonna implement all this stuff. Let me explain to them exactly what they should do and then they will run with it and do it. So what you're mm -hmm. doing is you're prefacing all the doing work by laying out exactly what should be done and why. And then if they want to, and they almost always will, they will hire you to do the work. Uh, and and I love that. So so for for those listening, this is this really is so valuable. And that is instead of giving that thinking away, instead of putting everything into that proposal, put a fence around that, make that into a product, and give them the opportunity to see that product. Give them ten percent of what you would do on a, a, a full project, and use that as a stepping stone into the rest of your services. And if you're able to do that effectively, you give them a way to guide them into your services instead of giving so much away for free upfront. Now, when it, when it comes to charging, David, um, do you, how would you define how you charge for the thinking and the strategy versus the execution? Is there kind of a, a, a ratio or a percentage of one versus the other? Um, just as a rule of thumb, of course, all, all deliverables are different, but is there, is there kind of a, a rule of thumb that you use? Uh, it's kind of, you know, five to 10% that, that rule usually applies, but it's so different from firm to firm. So if you're building a, a, a very complicated app, then, you mm -hmm. know, it's going to look different than if you're just doing an ad. So I don't know that there's a particular rule of thumb, but then you also have to think about okay, is it the same people doing both? Because if it is, it doesn't make any sense to charge them out at one rate for strategy and then a lower rate for implementation. Mm -hmm. You want to you wanna unbundle these things in your head and you want to make the strategy a requirement for working with you. And then you, you want to make the implementation optional and actually more expensive than where what they would pay somewhere else. They come to you for the implementation, not because you're cheaper, but because they want one throat to choke or they love how uh, great a job you've done and not letting the implementation of the recommendations get lost in translation, or it's just handy for them. And so you say, listen, we're happy to do that for you. We, we're using the same people, so it's a little more expensive than if you near short it or off short it, but it comes with this level of guarantee. So it, it's, it's kind of a messy, it's, it's hard to be real specific about what that looks like. Well, and, and look, I've heard you talk about this before as well in terms of guiding them through strategy in order to get to the execution. And I think your analogy was two buildings with two doors on it. On one, you have the execution. On the other, you have the strategy. And for a lot of businesses, freelancers, they have both doors open, allowing them to go into either door to, to, to pick or right. choose whichever they want. But if you close that that execution door and only allow them into the strategy door and then out the, the other side on the execution, you kind of guide them through and make sure that you get that strategy done before the execution on the other side. So I really like that analogy. And I think, uh, you know, for those who want to become experts and, and offer their expertise, that is a way, find that way to, to bring them through the strategy door and close that execution door uh, and only bring them through that way. Um, now, in, in I've heard you speaking about the prospecting stage and the importance of the prospecting stage. Um, how do you take control of that in a way that kind of gives you authority 
with your client and makes them think, okay, this this person is is somebody that can really help me. Yeah, well, this answer is not as complicated as people might want it to be, and it may not even be as satisfying. But the real key is to just not care. Uh, you. <laughs> You, you can't care about your prospect until they become a client. In fact, I'll, I'll just come right out and tell people, like, listen, I, you're asking me questions that I, I would know how to answer if we were together, and, but they also presume a certain level of investment, which I'm, I'm not going to be over-invested in this yet. I don't care at all about your situation yet. If you hire me, I'm going to care a whole lot, and you've got to separate that in your mind whoever cares the least about the about the engagement is the one that's going to win and if you come across as too eager too desperate then you lose all bargaining power and even if you do care even if it, acting like you don't care is too difficult for you as a person you've got to pretend not to care and if that is a difficult thing for you to pull off, then you've got to ensure that your positioning makes it easy to have a, a lead generation plan that const that's constantly dumping an opportunity in the top of the funnel so that if you don't get this particular job that's right in front of your nose right now, you're not gonna starve. You know that there are other people you can talk with. I We, we have this weird tendency to hang on to opportunity and overinvest in the sale, as Blair Ends, my podcast partner, talks about all the time. And that's what kills us because especially after we, we have all these sunk costs, we put all this time into a proposal, we spend all this time talking with the prospect, and the notion of just leaving that on the table and walking away from it is what really hurts us. So I know it doesn't sound all that scientific, but you just can't care too much about it. And I, I think, and look, we can all relate to that. We've all had situations where, you know, uh, you know, we, we kind of, you know, even if you think about relationships, you know, there's, there's the person who chases the other is the one that loses. And the more you chase, the more the other person runs away um, and, and vice versa. And if that's not something that you're good at doing, you can implement that into your processes simply by having a set structure to make it clear to your prospect that, you know, I am not chasing the sale. You follow your, your, uh, your your steps and you know it, it makes it clear that you know you're not desperate uh for the sale because if they sense that then obviously you know they're gonna go running it, that that's a, a mistake that i see time and again for um you know creatives when they're trying to to sell either execution or expertise what are some other mistakes that you've seen professionals make when it comes to selling their expertise uh, well, that over and other than that over investing, uh, I would say relying on referrals, uh, especially and by that, I also mean kind of word of mouth. I'm just throwing those in the same bucket, uh, which means that it sort of becomes like intermarriage in Kentucky or Mississippi, as we say up here, where it just keeps moving, spiraling downward because your capabilities have typically grown more so than early prospects' opinion of you. So they're still referring you to the same kinds of people that they did in those early days. Meanwhile, you're a much smarter firm than you were back then. So that, that would be another mistake that they do. I think um, another one is letting clients 
slowly over time redesign the service offering of the firm. So not having, not leading that process. So having a very clear idea of what you want to offer, what you can make money on, what's in your, what's in your sweet spot. And instead of that, letting clients say, hey, I need this from you. Can you do that? And then I don't know if you folks have the Cheesecake Factory where you are, but up here, that restaurant is notorious for having like an 80-page menu. Mm -hmm. And what happens at your firm is it looks your, – your service offering design looks very much like a Cheesecake Factory menu that just is very convoluted. And you keep putting things on the menu hoping that some fool will come along and find something they want to buy. That's not what experts do. Experts are very confident – in letting other people dance with the person they brought to the party. They're not afraid of losing that relationship. They're only gonna sell things that they're really good at doing and they're not going to overexpand because of what some one client wants. And often it's a client that's not all that great, just honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and look, you can uh, you can have clients who, who want all these different things. And, and if you don't have that discipline, then the positioning that you define in the first place becomes convoluted and and then you know you you don't have that position anymore and you you can still create a network of referrals if you if you need to to kind of earn more revenue and and keep that positioning tight now we we spoke a little earlier of of your two rooms your execution room and your strategy room when you decided to close that execution room and only make it exclusive for those who walk through the strategy door did you find a process or a series of, of questions that you could ask clients to kind of guide them through that strategy door when they, when they only wanted the execution door? Mm. Yeah, for sure. And this is where I think as an industry, we do a really good job of that. We're, we're generally very good at listening carefully, at being curious, at digging deeper. So somebody comes to you and they want something. And that something is almost always in the second room. It's almost always some sort of implementation because otherwise they're simply saying they're they're admitting by default that something's wrong that they haven't figured out yet. And what they've done instead, the, the prospect or the early client is said, this is what I need. They're self-diagnosing and they're looking to you not as a doctor, but as a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. They're saying, listen, uh, this is what I need. Can you fill the order? I'll go through the drive-through and pick that up. And so the natural thing to do is just to probe deeper and say, okay, what leads you to believe that that's the challenge? Or if we fix that, how will your life be different? I mean, that's where I don't know that... I think the people listening to this are usually pretty good at that, saying why, why, keep asking why, like how will that change? If you could wave a magic wand, what would you change about your firm? And then sometimes the way they've self-diagnosed is exactly correct, and other times it isn't. But this puts you along a path, and you've got to decide whether you're open to this or not. It puts you along a path of – moving away from being a doer to more of an advisor. And being an advisor means that you have to listen carefully, you have to push back, you have to disagree where appropriate, you have to take a stand, you have to have a point of view, a perspective. Doers don't, you, if they have those things, they don't talk about them too much. And so you have to decide 
if that if you're comfortable with that. Most people are. Most people that start businesses like this are very comfortable in that role, but it is a decision you have to make. Yeah, and, and look, it's great to hear you say so many things that align with my philosophies. In some cases, I talk about them in different ways, but essentially, they're all the exact same thing. So in this instance, I talk about uh, epiphany questions. So asking clients questions that will help them to kind of come to their own conclusion, because if they come to their own conclusion themselves, then it's their idea and you don't have to to sell them anything. Um, so it, it's kind of great to hear that, you know, those same uh, principles coming from you. And, and yeah, if, if that's what you want to do, if you want to sell your expertise, then questions are the way to, to kind of guide them into that strategy door before you allow them into the execution door. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if, if you were to, let's say you were to kind of, I was to strip you of, of your, your authority, your, your notoriety, people don't know who you are anymore. And you, you have your creative skills and you decide you want to start a creative uh, studio again. You want to build an agency. What, what would be the top three, three things that you would do? Two, three, four things that you would do to establish yourself in the market as an expert? Uh, well, first would have to be a focus. I, I just could never do something without a very tight focus. Second is I would start developing. I would put myself out there I, I'm a writer, so I would do it through writing, but it that might not be a natural fit for a lot of people. Maybe they'd rather do YouTube videos or whatever. Mm-hmm. But force yourself until you start articulating the, the clarity comes in the articulation. So that would that would be the other thing I would do. Um, third, I probably would try to find some platform that somebody else has already established that I could borrow, so to speak, a platform that would allow me to say, speak or appear on their podcast or do a webinar mm-hmm. for them, yep. just borrow. So I'm, I'm providing a really useful, I'm not just stealing insight or uh, impact from them. I'm doing something really valuable and probably doing it free. This is not, you're not charging for this kind of stuff. You're just generously giving it out. That's probably how I would start if I were starting out again. Yeah. And, and that's great. And, and just to kind of, to kind of re recap that start articulating what you believe because that clarifies your thoughts and then put yourself out there and try to leverage other people's uh, audiences so you can get more exposure that way. Uh, right. David, this has been, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. So many gold nuggets in here and, um, it, it very, very kind of reassuring, uh, coming from you, all of your philosophies aligning with, with things that, that I believe maybe somewhere in the background, a lot of my beliefs came from, from reading your book, um, way back then, but it's, it's been, it's been great having you on and, and this, uh, this has been truly valuable. Um, where can people find out uh, a little bit more about you? Now, obviously, you've got your your business of expertise book. If you haven't read that book, by the way, go and read it. There's so much valuable information in there. Um, and uh, David hasn't got his next book uh, ready to go, but something is in the pipeline. So a bit of teaser there. But when people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Sure. So my consulting website would be davidcbaker.com. Uh, the book is at expertise.is.is. 
And then uh, the podcast that I do with a friend of mine is called Two Bobs, uh, the numeral two bobs.com. And that, that's been out for, I think we've done 120 episodes or so. It comes out every two weeks. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And as I said, it's been so valuable. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more brand strategy techniques to level up your skills, make sure you check out brandmasteracademy.com. There's plenty of free resources and premium content for you to download and get you going. If you'd like to join our Facebook group full of like-minded brand strategists, all learning from each other, then find us by searching for the Brand Strategy Community, where you can find exclusive content for members as well. If you enjoyed this content, please be sure to give us an honest review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listened. And make sure you tune in for the next episode of the Brand Master Podcast.